for the evening. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning we considered some general observations about death and the intermediate state that we will enter when we die. We talked about this morning dying either in sin or dying in the Lord. This evening I wanted to try to give you as much information as I can about the intermediate state itself. What can we expect our life to be like when that day comes? And my focus tonight will be on the Christian's experience. The life of the unconverted will be very different. And that's not our concern for tonight. That's a a topic in and of itself. What happens to those who are not in Christ as they leave this world? We want to talk about tonight, focus on what happens to Christians when they leave this life, when Christians die. What will we experience? What is happening to our loved ones that have died right now? What can we know from the Scriptures about this? And I trust that the Scriptures will comfort and encourage us and give us confidence and hope concerning the future when we consider these things. Let me remind you that death is a <clears throat> excuse me that death is a temporary separation of the soul from the body. The intermediate state is that period of time between our death and the resurrection of our body. We won't forever be separated from our body. The great Christian hope is that we will be re, that we will be united back with our bodies uh, on the last day, and that's what is held up for us as the great hope. Uh, for Christian people. God created man, body, and soul, and death is the separating of what God intends to be together. It's not natural and it's not right that we should be in this state of, no, uh, of having no body. And that is why death is such a fearful thing uh, for us. And that's why the Bible calls death our enemy. And death is the last enemy that Christ will destroy. And when he does, our bodies and our souls will be united once again. What is that time like for us between our separation from our perishable body, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 15, and until that day when we receive our imperishable body on the last day? Here in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8, is the text I want us to look at. Tonight, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8. Before I do, let me remind you of something that we read in the Old Testament. This morning I I uh, started by our introduction by reminding you that precious is the sight of, uh, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy ones, his saints, and that it's precious to God. He's not indifferent. Let me uh, mention another thing from the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 says that the day of one's death is better than the day of, day of one's birth. And so we should have that perspective, and I hope we'll see that in the things that we look at tonight. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Let's read those verses. Now we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. 
But indeed, while we are in the, this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, and to be clothed in order, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent with the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and, ra and, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, we can make a number of observations about the intermediate state from this passage. And the first and most obvious uh, one is that we will be with the Lord. In verse 8, the last verse that we read there, it tells, tells us that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. We will be present with Christ. And so when we die, we will immediately be present with the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, and keep your place in second. Corinthians, and if you turn over to Philippians 1, I'm going to look at this passage a couple of times as well. It says in verse 23, Philippians 1, 23, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And so we see here that he talks about departing this life as being with Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the most blessed, the most glorious, the most awesome person in all of the universe. And to be separate from this body is to be immediately in heaven with him. Now that ought to be enough right there to just make us stop and be encouraged about what's going to happen to us when we leave this life. If you remember the words of our Lord to the thief on the cross, he said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's Luke Chapter 23 and verse 43. In verse 7, back in our text in, in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 7 we read, For we walk by faith, not by sight. That is how we live now. Now, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, we're, we're walking by faith. We're not walking by sight. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 in our text. 1 Peter 1, 8 says this, And though you have not seen him, and why have we not seen him? Because we are walking by faith, not by sight. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Suddenly, we will no longer walk by faith, but we will be walking by sight. How much more, to use the language of 1 Peter, will we love Him, rejoice in Him, and glory in Him then than we're ever able to do now when we walk by faith and not by sight? The wonder of it all is beyond our ability to even imagine. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, in which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now the second thing I want to draw your attention to from our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is that our death is a homecoming. It doesn't just say with the Lord, it says and at home with the Lord. The word home is found only in these verses in the New Testament. 
It means to be among one's own people or country, to have a fixed abode, to be at home. Now, this is certainly a different perspective on dying from the way we tend to think. How do we think about dying? We are leaving home. We're leaving what is comfortable. We're leaving what we know. That is the way we tend to think about our dying. Let me ask you, have you ever been on a trip, even a good trip, and you arrive back home? And isn't it wonderful when you get back home? No matter how good the trip was, it's wonderful to get back home, to be in your own home. Well, when we arrive in heaven, we will not be arriving in a strange place. We will not be away from home. We will be arriving at home with our own people in our own place. Remember that in this present world, we are aliens and sojourners. This is not our home. Hebrews eleven thirteen. all these died in faith, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And when we die, we are not leaving home. We are going home. We are at home with the Lord. The next observation I'd like to make from our text is that the intermediate state is better than this life. Look at our text here in 1 Corinthians. Notice in verse 1 that it is the difference between a tent and a building. Verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our, is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I know recently we had, uh, we were doing some camping. And uh, what do you think? What's better? A tent or an edifice, a real building? Some of us won't even go camping (laughs) in answer to that question. And so that's the difference between this life we have now. It's a tent that, uh, that is going to be torn down, that it's not even stable and won't last, versus a, a building, a, a structure that is our home in heaven, the difference between a tent and a building. Also, in verse 1, it is a difference between being torn down and being eternal. Our verse says that if this earthly tent that is our house is torn down, We have a building from God eternal in the heavens. It's the difference between a tent that's going to be torn down and a building that is eternal. It is the difference between earth and heaven. It is an earthly tent. It is a building building eternal in the heavens. It is the difference between groaning and being burdened or not. Look at verse 2 and verse 4. Indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Verse 4. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Right now, we're living in a, in a, in a house, this body, that groans and is burdened and has all kinds of problems and difficulties, but we will be leaving all of that behind when we pass into the intermediate state. It is the difference, in, again, in verse 4 that we just read. It is the difference between being mortal and being swallowed up by life. Now, I hope 
that that phrase sounds like great. Just think about it. To be swallowed up by life. What does that even mean? It's got to be something incredible and wonderful. Then verse 8 tells us that to be with the Lord is preferable. Verse 8, be of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. To prefer rather. Now, that term uh, preferable is a word that means to seem good, for something to seem good. To choose or determine or decide for something. To be ready for something, to prefer something, to be well pleased with something, to take pleasure in something. That is the idea in that word to rather or to prefer. It's preferable uh, that we go to be with the Lord. Again, in Philippians 1, that we were looking at just a moment ago, in verse 21... It tells us, for me to live is Christ and to to die is to lose everything. It's all over. No, to die is to gain. And then in verse 23, and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Very much better. And that term, very much better, is actually... Two words, it is the word that it means many or much, and then it's the word that means more useful, more advantageous, more excellent. So it's like much more useful, much more advantageous, much more excellent. It is very much better. The intermediate state is better than this life. The next observation I'd like to make about the intermediate state is that it is conscious existence. There have been many over the centuries that have taught that what is usually called soul sleep. It's the idea that the soul is asleep between death and the resurrection, some kind of suspended animation or an extended coma of the soul. Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses are two modern cults that teach this particular doctrine. We read this kind of language in the Bible. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. John 11.11 So why is the term sleep used many times in the Scriptures as it applies to death? Well, I would suggest to you that the term applies to the body and not the soul. The dead body has the appearance of sleep. As far as the observation of the living is concerned, the dead are like they are asleep. And I would suggest that there's another reason as well that this term is used to describe our death. When we go to sleep, we do so with the expectation of doing what? Of waking up and of being refreshed and of being restored. And that is exactly what happens in death when the Christian goes to sleep. Our bodies go to sleep for a time, but they're going to wake up again. And when they wake up, they're going to be restored. They're going to be refreshed. They're going to be actually made new in the resurrection of the dead. And so our earthly bodies do go to sleep for a little while, but soon they will awake 
and they will be refreshed and restored. Our body, not our soul, sleeps. The soul is conscious, not asleep. Being with the Lord requires conscious existence. Falling into permanent sleep cannot be what is meant by being with me today in paradise or being at home with the Lord or being swallowed up by life or to gain or to be very much better. Believers on earth already participate in eternal life. After dying, far from losing this, they will enjoy in a way more intense and more blessed than ever before uh, the life that they have in Christ. To die is the way to closer, more intimate fellowship with Christ. It is not to go into a state of non-existence, of sleep, of perpetual uh, rest, as has been taught by many. Note something else in our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 5, it says, back in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, it says, Now he who has prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Now I would suggest to you that this is a powerful uh, uh, statement about the fact that, our, that we are going to be alive and awake and, and conscious in the future state. The Spirit is being given to us as a pledge of what we are going to really have when we are in heaven. And what does the Spirit give us in this life when we have just a pledge, just a deposit of what we are going to have? Well, our life in the Spirit is, is that the Spirit indwells us. He, he is active in our life. He is with us in promoting sanctification. Uh, he, he produces in us everything that we ever do that's good and holy and right. The Spirit is very much active and alive with us. And that's just the deposit, the down payment, the earnest money. It's not the real payment of the whole thing that we're going to receive from the Spirit in our life with Him. And so I would suggest that this pledge of the Spirit that he's talking about here in this verse, he's referring to it specifically for this reason, so that we will be in, have, have courage that what is, lies ahead of, is, of us is even greater life with the Spirit. Our loved ones who have fallen asleep in Christ have a richer, deeper, more joyful, conscious experience of the Lord than anyone could ever enjoy here on earth. If you remember the story in Luke 16 about uh, the rich man who dies and Lazarus who dies, one that dies in his sin, one who dies in the Lord. It says in verse 23 in Luke 16, I'm not going to turn there and read this, the, those verses, it's too long uh, for our purposes, but in verse 23 it says, In Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Now I'm, I'm speaking about this in terms of conscious existence. He saw in verse 24, he cries out. In verse 25, Lazarus is being comforted. In verse 27 and 28, uh, the rich man is begging that someone go and warn his family. Clearly, this is conscious existence. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. If you would, Revelation chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God 
and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Now, there's a number of observations that we can make, but first of all, let's consider how, what this tells us about conscious existence. It tells us about this in a number of ways. Note that they worship, for they are before God's throne and His altar. They worship. They wonder and question. They do not have all of their questions answered yet. They ask, how long? Like us, they have to be patient for some things to become clear. They wait, although perfectly happy. The spirits in heaven are still waiting for the last day and the resurrection glory to come. They, are, they still live in anticipation of the consummation of all things and the restoration of all things. They are patiently waiting, but they are still looking forward along with us because all has not been finished yet. And so the, our departed loved ones that are in heaven, all the saints that are in heaven, they right now, just like we are, are looking forward still to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the last day, to the day of the restoration of all things, to the day when, we, when there will be the resurrection of our bodies. They're still waiting for that. Just like we are looking forward and still anticipating that, they are doing that as well. This presupposes some kind of time in the intermediate state. Time, certainly without the burden of this fallen world, when time is not our friend, but time nevertheless. These souls that are pictured here in the intermediate state have a past that they remember. They have a present that they enjoy, and they have a future to which they still look forward to things yet to come. And so they live in a world of time in the intermediate state. Note that while the intermediate state is better, it is not the best. The best awaits the new heavens and the new earth and the day of the restoration of all things. And when I use that term, the day of the restoration of all, all things, that's the term that we have in the book of Acts for uh, the day when God will make all things right. The intermediate state is also a state of holiness and sinless existence. We can see that uh, in two ways here in this passage in Revelation chapter 6. We see it because these saints have a desire that God act justly toward the wicked. We see that in verse 10. They cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood? They want to see the justice of God uh, to do what is right. And then in verse 11, we're told that there was given to each of them a white robe. They are clothed in white robes, pure and clean. What do you think that's a symbol of? I think that's very obvious. That is a symbol of their moral purity there in heaven. And in case we have any doubt, let's look over at Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 22 through 24. Hebrews chapter 12. 
Verse 22. And you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and myriads of angels. Let me just pause and say that what he's describing here is we have become Christians. And because we're in Christ, we have been brought to these things. These are real things that have become part of our life, part of what uh, we are as the people of God. As we read on, verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than that the blood of Abel. In verse 23, it says at the end of the verse that one of the things that we have been brought to when we became Christians, one of the things that we uh, are connected to in Christ is that we have been brought to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That is those people in the intermediate state. They have been made holy. They have been made perfect in sanctification. Our sanctification is far from complete. But that process will be over when we enter the intermediate state. I don't even know what to say. How can we even imagine what it will be like to have an unsinning heart? We have never had a moment, ever, that everything about us was not touched by sin and pollution. I would suggest it's beyond our comprehension to even begin to know what it means to be done with sin and to be a spirit made perfect. I don't even know what to say. I'm sure it's glorious and a wonderful thing. The intermediate state is a state of separation from this present world. Ecclesiastes 9 says this. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 6. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will, have, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. And so this is a statement about the decisive way in which we are separated from everything in this world when we enter death. Verse 10 says this, Whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. Now, I want us to be careful about something. We need to Always have in mind when we're reading in the Old Testament and it talks about the grave and those that are in the grave, it always speaks about it from the perspective of the living. It's not true that people that are in the grave, people that are in the intermediate state, have no activity or no planning or no wisdom. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But from an earthly perspective, from the perspective of the living, they don't participate in those things. They're cut off from it. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. The intermediate state is a state of separation 
from this present world. There's no contact between the living and the dead. If you'll recall in the Old Testament, the practice of such things, trying to contact the dead, is strictly forbidden. Now, it's not forbidden because it's possible to contact the dead. It is forbidden because when we try to do that kind of thing, we open ourselves up and expose ourselves to Satan and evil spirits and all kinds of wickedness, we're not going to contact Aunt Susie, who has died, and get a message from her. But it is an evil thing because we're opening ourselves up to evil things, and we are trying to go into secret places where we don't belong. And so that is, is strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. In Luke 16, the rich man wants someone to go back to his brothers from the place of the dead and warn them, but there's no going back. If you've ever heard that your grandmother may be hovering around your life and following you around and watching everything you do, or some friend of yours that's following you around and watching your life, uh, that, that kind of thing is simply not supported by any scripture. People in heaven are not spectators of this world. And the whole of Scripture proceeds from the idea that death is a total break with life on this side of the grave. Now, another thing about the intermediate state is this. We will know other people. From Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we can know several things. The dead continue to remember the things that happened to them on earth. They remember their past life. The rich man and Lazarus do not lose their identity as individuals, and they know each other. The rich man knows that Lazarus is over in Abraham's bosom. We read this morning in Revelation 14, Revelation 14 13, that our deeds follow us. Our identity and our history are not lost when we die. God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. These are real people with personal identities. And the scriptures tell us that he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They continue to exist as individual, distinct, recognizable persons. We will be the same person in the resurrection that we are now. Certainly we will have our identity intact in the days between this life in the final state when we're raised from the dead. I would suggest something even further. The church on earth is a community of believers commanded and committed to living together in fellowship and intimate relationship. At the very center of which is our love for Christ, the work of the Spirit, and our desire to serve our common King. Why would we think that those same things would be anything but enhanced and elevated for the saints in heaven? I suggest that the fellowship of heaven will not only be with Christ, but with all of his body, his church, his bride. With Christ, in Christ, I would suggest certainly means would include the body of Christ. We are joined to Him. We are united to Him. We are the body of which He is the head. So if we are with Christ, we will be with all Christ's people in the intermediate state. The hope of reunion on the other side of the grave is completely natural. 
It's genuinely, it is a genuine human desire. And I would suggest that it is consistent with the concepts of Scripture concerning Christ and His church. The joy of heaven, to be sure, will first consist in communion with Christ, but it will also consist of fellowship with the saints. Our fellowship in Christ's church here on earth does not infringe on our fellowship with Christ, but rather reinforces and enriches it, and so it will be in heaven. If we fellowship, if we fellowship, we will certainly know one another as real distinct individuals. If we have fellowship with other people in heaven, we're certainly going to know one another as real distinct individual people. Angels rejoice over one sinner who repents, Luke 15, 7. They celebrate the triumphs of God's grace, and I suggest that so will we. Certainly all of heaven takes up that rejoicing in the grace of God. And dear ones, I would like to think that I would know if someone that I love who is still here in this life came to know Christ so that I could rejoice along with the holy angels. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to think will be true for us in heaven. Another thing about the intermediate state is this. We will be active. We will serve. We will learn. We will grow. Adam in the garden before the fall was given work to do. From the moment of our new birth, we were given good works to do. Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In the, same, in the new heavens and the new earth, we know that there will be work for us to do. I would suggest in the same way, in the intermediate state, we will be active. Revelation 7.15 says, They are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. If the saints in heaven know God, if they know Christ, if they know the angels, if they know one another, then they must and will be engaged in activities of the intellect and the will. They must be increasing in experience and in knowledge. And they must be engaged in, act in activities of love and service. If believers on earth are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, as they behold the glory of God in the mirror of Scripture, that's 2 Corinthians 3.18, how much more will they grow and learn and experience ever-increasing degrees of conformity to Christ, knowledge of Christ, and love for Christ when they no longer see through a mirror dimly, but face to face, 1 Corinthians 13.12, when they are at home, with the Lord. There's a distinction of rank and activity among the angels of heaven. There's a diversity in all created things and especially among human beings. On earth, every believer has his own gift and is charged with his own responsibilities in Christ's church. Certainly, this diversity is not destroyed in heaven. Gifts and responsibilities, service to Christ and His church, Heaven will be better in all of these things. Now, there's a very real and natural question for us to ask. I bet if you've ever thought much about these things, you've asked this question. How can we exist and function without a body? You ever thought about that? I mean, to think about being in heaven, to be in, 
in existence with no body is just like weird. I mean, how? what can it be? It's very difficult to imagine life without a body. Everything we enjoy in this life we experience through our body. Our body is our interface to life and the world that we live in. So how could we have any kind of life, let alone a better life, without a body? Does it sound very appealing to you to think that you might just float along in the mist for thousands of years with nothing really to do? I have to be honest, it doesn't really sound that appealing to me if that's what heaven is. Let me make a couple of observations. First of all, to be separated from our sinful body will be an improvement, though we will be incomplete until the resurrection. But it will be an improvement. This body does not sanctify us. It does not help us in our spiritual life, but it often works against us. It will be an improvement. But consider with me God and the angels. God's a spirit. He has no physical body. Is there any question about whether his life is full and rich and complete? I hope none at all. Consider the angels, which are much more like us because they are creatures like us, but they are spirit beings without a physical body. Angels are souls or spirits without bodies, and yet we know from Scripture that they live full, conscious, and joyful lives in the presence of God. Angels do not have eyes as we do, or eyeballs, or retinas, but the Bible says that they always behold the face of the Father in heaven, Matthew 18.10. Angels do not have voices as we do, yet they sing praises and appear to shepherds, communicating in language, peace on earth. They stand in the presence of God. They stand in the presence of God is the language of the Scriptures. The holy angels, Luke 1, 19. There's a seeing that doesn't depend on eyes. A hearing that doesn't depend on ears. A singing that, a singing that doesn't depend on vocal cords. A, servant, a serving that doesn't depend on hands. A moving that doesn't depend on feet. Now, I don't know how the angels do that, but they do all those things. And thinking about angels, I suggest, helps us at least to begin to think about the life of believers whose souls, but not bodies, are in heaven. It doesn't answer our questions, but I think it should satisfy us that we can have life that's full and conscious and, and active, though we have no body. Turn with me to Revelation 5 for a moment. There's two more things I want us to consider before we close tonight. Two things. One, the first thing is this. I want to give you an example of life in heaven. The intermediate state. Imagine that it is not the year 2013. That it is instead the year 13. Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, is about 15 years old. Now imagine over the next 15 years that we all die and we all go into the intermediate state. We're all believers in the intermediate state. But we pass from this life. 
Now consider the scene here in Revelation chapter 5. The enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of heaven. In verse 5 it says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out from all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So let's pause there. This is probably one of the most dramatic moments that have ever been. I maybe could say it's the most dramatic moment. The Lord Jesus Christ, having ascended into heaven, arrives at the throne of God, and He is going to take His place at the right hand of God. He's a real person, and He's arriving there. He's been raised from the dead. And here we have this scene in heaven, and John is seeing it. And who else is there besides God and the Lamb? The angels are there. The heavenly creatures are there. And let's read on. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, a harp and golden bowls full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase from God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and, a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And who do you think that is? Who are those myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands? If we had died and we were in the immediate state and we were there in heaven when this happened, we would have been there. We would have seen Jesus Christ arrive in heaven. We would have seen Him take the book. We would have seen Him sit on the throne. We would have been in this company that raises its voices in praise. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, we would have shouted. We would have, we would have uh, to the top of our lungs, our lungs that we don't have, <laughs> Because we have no body. But we would have said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We would have said that, I would suggest, if we had been there in heaven on that day. I suggest that all of heaven was there witnessing, praising, Worshiping, If we had been there, we would have been saying with all these other creatures and the angels, worthy is the Lamb. Dear ones, do you think that heaven is going to be boring? Christ is opening those seals every day. 
He's unfolding the purposes of God every day. God and the Lamb are doing great things every day. And those that are there to witness it are praising God every day. It will never be boring to be where Christ is. And if you would turn back with me to 2 Corinthians 5, one final observation. I want to make this final observation, this encouragement from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 6 says, being always of good courage. And in verse 8 says, we are of good courage. Is it possible to be courageous in the face of death? And if so, how can we? Well, I want to close by pointing you back to the opening words of verse 5. These are very important words. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. Do you see what he's saying? It is God who has been preparing you for this, that is, for your passing from this life into the life to come. He's been working on you and in you with this moment in view. We talk, we talk about preparing for death, and that's important. But Paul says, here's what will give you courage in the face of death. Not that you have prepared yourself, but that God, but that God has prepared you for this very thing. He began the preparation for you back in eternity when before you ever even existed, He set His love on you. He was preparing for this very thing when He sent His Son into the world. And He was preparing you for this very thing when Christ was pierced through for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. He was preparing you so that you wouldn't be in your sins. He was preparing you when He brought the gospel to you. And He was preparing you when He made you alive together with Christ and gave you the gift of faith and repentance. He was preparing you for this very thing in every joy and every trial of your life. And when the moment of your death comes, nothing will be left to chance. You will be prepared because it is God's work and not yours. God in Christ has been preparing a place for you and He has prepared you for that place. Can we have courage in these things? We can if our hope is in Christ and what He has done. And let me remind you the words that describe the place of our existence in the, inter in the intermediate state. The words are heaven, paradise, home. May God help us to have courage as we face these things. Let's close with a word of prayer.